Hey, we love partnering with Shepherd Community Center. If you don't know anything about them, they're on the east side of Indianapolis, near east side, and they work with kids uh, mostly in IPS schools. And they do after-school programs and then weekend programs, and they also do some enrichment classes for adults and things like that. And they're always looking for volunteers. So if you're looking for a way to serve outside of Genesis Church, our partners at Shepherd Community uh, would love to have you do that. I, I encourage you to look them up. Well, happy Easter. My name is Steve Wallen. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I'm glad that you're here today. We're thankful to have you joining us on this special morning. And it's special because, um, well, we're celebrating generosity, 200 food totes uh, for Shepherd Community. So that's a big deal. Uh, We're celebrating baptisms this morning. We've had uh, seven baptisms across our two campuses this morning. Unfortunately, none here. The trade-off was you guys got to sleep in. Uh, but on the, on the flip side, you missed our baptisms that were in the last service. So uh, that was really awesome. Life change that comes with those baptisms. But most of all, we're celebrating Easter. And uh, for you, Easter may mean a lot of things. Maybe you have some family traditions around Easter. I know when I was a kid, we had some traditions. One of those was we would dye eggs. Uh, if you're from my generation, you probably did this with real Easter eggs too. You would uh, grab the Easter eggs and you boil maybe a dozen eggs and then you get one of those dye kits that smells like vinegar and you dye the eggs uh, all different colors and if you were anything like me at the end they all got mixed together and you ended up with a bunch of purplish brown eggs anyway Uh, that's what we did you dye the eggs purplish brown and then you put them in a little cardboard thing to dry and then they got hidden in the yard and then Sunday morning we'd go out and find all the eggs put them back in the fridge and let them rot there until about Memorial Day and then we threw them all out that was our tradition right and so maybe you've got That's probably why we started using plastic Easter eggs after all. So maybe you have a tradition like that. Maybe for you, it's baskets of candy. How many of you got a visit from the Easter Bunny this morning? Anybody get a visit from the Easter Bunny? All right. Anything good? Anything that you like want to give up? I'm I'm open. Uh, for, For many of you, maybe it's Easter brunch. Although now that I'm saying that, it's coming out of my mouth. It's 11.30 right now. So probably not, you're probably not the brunch type. Maybe you're the Easter dinner type and you're going to have family over at your house for Easter dinner. Maybe it's neighborhood Easter egg hunts or even just a weekend outside as it finally feels like spring is actually here. But I know for many of you, Easter is another tradition and that's the one time of year that you end up in a church for a worship service. And if that's you, I just want to say thank you. I'm glad that you're here with us. I want you to know that this is an important week for us because it's the week that we as Christians celebrate the most important event in all of human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we're here today. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment because if you've been in church for a long time, maybe your whole life, you've heard the Easter story, well, at least once a year for your entire life. You might be able to recite it. You could probably point me to the scripture where it's contained. And you know the details of the Easter story in your head. But have you ever, or when was the last time that you really let the emotion of the Easter story sink into your heart? I hope you'll do that today as we read through it together. And then I know that there are people in the room that maybe didn't grow up in church and you're not used to hearing the Easter story. Maybe you agreed to join us today because a friend or family member invited you and they wouldn't shut up. Your coworker wouldn't shut up about this church that they go to. And you thought, I just have to go see what, what that's all about. Or your family kept nudging you to come and then finally you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, I get it. I'll come to church on Easter. If that's you, we're glad you're here. Maybe uh, 2020 was especially tough for you. And now 2021 has started and it's actually a quarter of the way over already. And 2021 just doesn't feel any different than 2020. And 
you've looked for answers in a lot of different places, but you haven't found them yet. And you think, well, maybe church has something. And you're here like with that one last plea of hope that, that maybe God has something for you here. And if that's you, I'm glad you're here. But if this is your one-time visit to a church every year, or maybe it's your first time ever visit to a church, I'm guessing it's because that Jesus just doesn't play a very big role in your life, that it's not really that important. Maybe you like the idea of God, but you're not really big on the rules that come with religion, or you don't really like sitting through a boring church service every Sunday. I don't blame you. I'm right there with you. I don't like rules either. And I certainly don't like boring church services. And I hope that today we can at least start to change some of that for you. Because I think it's important for you to know that I and the leaders here at Genesis and many of the people in the seats around you really believe that there was a man named Jesus who lived in the first century in the Middle East who lived a perfect sinless life, who was killed on a cross for what he believed in and then was raised from the dead three years or three days later. And I know that sounds crazy and I know that defies logic. But the more I read about this, the more I studied it, the more I researched it, the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection, the more I came to believe in my head and in my heart that there was really only one way this could have happened, that there was no other way that that many people could have kept a secret for that big of a secret for that long, even at the risk of their own deaths. And so while the skeptic in me didn't want to believe, the pragmatic in me decided that it had to be true, that there was no other way that this story could have happened, which raised in me the next big important question, which was this, how does someone raised from the dead? Because honestly, uh, most of us have lost someone that we love to death. For you, maybe it was a parent. Uh, maybe it was a, a friend or a, a spouse. Heaven forbid it was a child. And you would give anything to have them back. And you just want to know that that's not the end for them. That maybe someday you'll get to see them again. But even if we've, not been uh, if we've been fortunate enough to avoid the closeness of death for so long, we know it's just a matter of time, right? And if living in this COVID world for the last year has taught us anything, it's that death is scary because it's a harsh reality for all of us. And it seems so final, doesn't it? Death seems so final. But here's the good news. How many of you need good news today? How many of you came for good news? Yeah, the good news is that death isn't final. Death doesn't have to be final. Because of his perfect life, his horrible death on the cross, and his miraculous resurrection, Jesus was able to put death to death. And so I'm going to tell the story today from the perspective of the men and women who were the closest to Jesus. These men and women, many of them walked with him during his life. They saw his death. They uh, went to the tomb and saw that happen. Uh, and because they could really appreciate this idea that death seemed final, when they saw their friend, their teacher, their leader hanging on the cross, bleeding out, dying, they kind of felt like it was all over. But according to the writers of the New Testament, Jesus' closest followers had known him about three years, three and a half years. Uh, by the time he was crucified, he was about 33 to 34 years old when he died, and that is so young. And the older I get, the younger 33 seems. And I know some of you are in that boat too. And on top of that, some of Jesus' followers honestly believed that he was 
the Messiah or the Christ. Now, this is a, a person that the Old Testament talks about. There are about 300 prophecies that God gave to his people, the people of Israel, that are in the Old Testament about this Messiah that would come, uh, this Savior that would come with the mission of rescuing humanity uh, from the reality of death and restoring their relationship with him, with God. And the more people spent time with Jesus, the more they started to see in him a lot of these characteristics that the Old Testament said would be a part of this Messiah. So they started to believe that maybe this Jesus really was the Savior and King who was going to come and rescue them from, outside, from under the iron fist of the Roman Empire. And everything seemed to be falling into place on this one Sunday, a Sunday ago, uh, what we now call Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into town on this donkey and people from all over the world gathered to wave him into the city as king. But that was on Sunday. And by Thursday, he was betrayed by a close friend. And a few hours later, he was arrested and brutally beaten beyond the point of recognition. And then to top it all off, his hands and his feet were nailed to a cross and he was literally hung up to die on what we now know as Good Friday. And that's where I want to pick up the story today. So normally what I would do is invite you to open your Bible to such and such chapter and verse, but uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do something different today because uh, our New Testament starts with four accounts of Jesus' life. We call them the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four tellings of the same story by four different authors. But contrary to popular belief, uh, when it comes to the resurrection, they don't contradict each other. But what they do do is they mesh together really well. And so instead of reading one author's account, what, what we've done is we've put together all four of these accounts to kind of give you a fuller picture of what the time between the crucifixion and the resurrection looked like. So if you want to follow along in the scriptures, I'm going to put them on the screen just so you can see I'm not making this up. Um, but I'm really going to encourage you just to listen. Maybe even to close your eyes if that helps you picture what is going on here as we go through this account. We're going to start in Mark chapter 15 on the Friday when Jesus is crucified. Mark 15:33 says this. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. The next day, this is Saturday, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Now, Pilate was the governor of the area where Jerusalem was. He was part of the Roman Empire, and his job was to manage this area around Jerusalem. So the, the leaders of the Israelites came to him and said, uh, Sir, we remember that while he was alive, that deceiver said, now they're talking about Jesus there, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So, governor, give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he had been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go and make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. 
On Saturday, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday, the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Because the stone would have been very heavy and had been sealed by the Roman guard. Now this is where it gets good. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. Now these angels, anytime you see angels in scripture, they are terrifying creatures. They are bright, they are filled with energy and light and everyone who sees them bows down on the ground to them because they are so terrifying. So let me just suggest that if you have a picture of an angel in your house and it's a beautiful woman with wings, uh, or if you have a sculpture of an angel that looks a lot like a baby, throw that out. That ain't real, all right? <laughs> they are terrifying creatures. Look at this in Luke 24. Now, when the women arrived at Jesus's tomb with the spices to embalm his dead body, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning beside them stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? But then Mark tells us that the angel makes this declaration. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will find him just as he told you. He is risen. Go into Galilee just as he told you. And I got to imagine that just then the women's minds rushed back to what Jesus used to teach them. We see this several times where he teaches his disciples this. The first time I see it is in Mark chapter 8. Uh, Jesus pulls his disciples aside. We know that this was something that was widespread among his followers because the Pharisees knew about it. And so these women must have known about it. But in Mark uh, chapter 8, verse 31, it says this. Uh, then he began, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, that was Jesus' name for himself, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed, and then after three days, rise again. So Jesus has told them this several times. He tells them, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be turned over to the chief priest. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed. But then three days later, I'm going to come back from the dead. But even equipped with this information, that didn't help these women process what they had seen, what had happened. After all, people don't just come back from the dead. So Mark tells us, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And what do you do? What do you do when you see something that doesn't match your experience? What do you do when you encounter something, you see something with your own eyes, you hear something with your own ears, and that doesn't match what you know is supposed to happen or supposed to be allowed to happen? I mean, you've got to tell somebody, you've got to figure out how to process this information. Well, the angels told them to go find the disciples and Peter. Ah, 
Let's go find Peter. Peter will know what to do. So that's what they do. Luke's account picks up next. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, uh, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the, the apostles. I love that. I love that we have names. That it's not just this random group of women that came and rushed to the tomb. We have their names preserved for all of eternity in Scripture. That's awesome. But they, the men, did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So just imagine this. Put yourself in the men's situation for a moment. You're in this room. You've been mourning your friend for the last couple of days who you saw die. And these women come in and they're a little bit hysterical and they're talking about that maybe your friend has been raised from the dead. Uh, What do you do? You want to believe, but do you dare believe that your friend defeated death when you know that that's not what happens? But then Peter steps up because Peter, well, I think he's got a little more experience at this. He, in that time when Jesus started talking about Remember when Jesus said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be turned over to the leaders and I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be killed and I'm going to be raised from the dead. Well, the first time he talked about that, Peter kind of confronted him on it. Look at this in Mark 8, 32. It says, Jesus spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine the gall to to rebuke Jesus? I I can just think, I can just hear Peter now taking, hey, Jesus, come here. Hey, um, you need to stop talking about dying, man. That's really bad for morale. Like the the troops are wondering, they they think you're the king. They think you're the ones that are here to defeat the Roman Empire. And you're talking about being turned over to the chief priest and the leaders and they're going to kill you. That's not going to be good for our cause. You need to stop that. He tries to rebuke Jesus, but look at what happens. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. He calls his friend Satan. Uh, kids, students, don't do that, okay? Don't call your friend Satan. That's not nice. Play nice. He calls him Satan and he says, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I got to imagine that comes to Peter's mind when he hears that maybe his friend has been raised from the dead. So what does he do? He decides to see for himself. Luke 24 says, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And look at this. He went away wondering to himself what had happened. Now, okay, let's rewind for a second. The Pharisees knew that Jesus had predicted that he was going to die and be raised from the dead. These women probably heard him talking to his disciples about that. Peter certainly heard him talking to his disciples about that because Peter was there and rebuked him and didn't believe it. And now that Jesus has been raised from the dead and Peter goes to the tomb and sees the linen strips lying there, if I'm keeping score, the exact number of people who were the closest to Jesus that believed he was actually raised from the dead is zero. (laughs) Nobody. Nobody believed it. From what we can tell on that first Easter, the people that knew Jesus best who saw the empty tomb Here are the words that I've read through from Scripture that describe them. Puzzled, terrified, trembling, bewildered, afraid, and skeptical. And who can blame them? After all, they had seen Jesus raise people from the dead, but two days before they had also watched him die a horrible, gruesome death and die in agony. And 
Some of them had helped lay his dead body in the tomb and others showed up expecting to embalm him because that's what you do with a dead man. And maybe if you were honest with yourself, there's this little voice inside your head that says, exactly. That's why I think all you Jesus people are so crazy because people don't just come back from the dead. If there's anything in that phrase that resonates with you, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. And, and hear me when I say, I've been where you are. I haven't always been a Christian. I haven't been a follower of Jesus my whole life. In fact, a good part of my adult life, I didn't know Jesus. I didn't have a relationship with God, but I was skeptical too, but I did my research. I did my research and the more I did, the more I found it undeniable that Jesus was the Messiah, was the Christ, that he was the Savior sent by God who lived a sinless, perfect life, who died an agonizing death on the cross, a death that I deserved, and then three days later was raised from the dead to the shock and surprise of his closest friends. Now, how did I arrive at that conclusion? I want to tell you it was quite simple. It was statistics. It was math. Here's what I mean by that. Uh, I'm going to give you an example first. How many of you have filled out at least one bracket for the NCAA men's basketball tournament? Raise your hand. Okay, about half the room. How many of you that filled a bracket out have got all four of the final four right? Only one person. I think he's lying. Maybe not. Uh, the odds are very low. There was uh, ESPN asked 38 experts, people who know way more about basketball than I do, for sure, and uh, to fill out their brackets before the tournament started, and none of the 38 even got the final four right. But even if you got the final four right, has anybody gotten all the games right so far? Anyone? No. You know why? It's almost impossible. In fact, uh, in the years since the current tournament format was introduced in 1985, the NCAA has tracked between 60 and 100 million brackets every year. Now, these are brackets that are ready, readily available to be seen before the tournament starts. So on things like ESPN's Bracket Challenge and CBS's Bracket Challenge, places where you can go and you can't go make changes like the day before the final game, okay? These are brackets that are readily available for everybody to witness. NCAA has tracked 60 to 100 million a year for the last 36 years, 35 tournaments. So three billion brackets and no one has ever gotten every game right. The longest streak has been 49 games, uh, which was amazing. But an article on the NCAA website this week predicted that the odds of getting a perfect bracket are this number right here, one in 120.2 billion. One in 120.2 billion. That's 120 with basically nine zeros after it. That's a big number, right? That's long odds. It, ain't just, it just ain't gonna happen. Now, why am I telling you that? Because I told you that there are about 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the person who would be the Messiah. And one mathematician several years ago took 16 of the most common prophecies that are listed in the Old Testament about this Messiah, uh, the ones that you and I would know if you have any uh, knowledge of Scripture at all, and calculated the odds of these 16 being fulfilled in one person. And he determined the odds of one person fulfilling 16 of these prophecies to be one in one quattro decillion. One person in one quattro decillion. Now that is a one with 45 zeros after it. That is some big odds. But the writers of the New Testament 
confirm that Jesus fulfilled not just these 16, but all 300 of these Old Testament prophecies. Things like that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would come out of Egypt, that he would die for our sin, and that he would be raised from the dead. And so what I want to do is I just want to look at a couple of these from the Old Testament, uh, starting with the book of Job. Many scholars believe that Job was the first book written in the Bible, uh, written some 2,200 years before Christ. Now, Job, I, I think, understands the finality of death. Uh, we, we know that his story, if you've read Job's story, you know that he uh, has a tragic thing happen in his life where his wife and his entire family is killed. And uh, they don't come back from the dead. Job understands this. Here's what he writes in Job 14. He says, but a man dies and is laid low. He breathes his last and is no more. And I think if I were to interpret that into more modern day language, I would say that Job would say, when you're dead, you're dead. And that's kind of what that verse says, right? When you're dead, you're dead. Uh, but look, here's what happens. And here's what he says later in chapter 19. He says this, but as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth as last and at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body, I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I am overwhelmed with the thought. See, Job knows that death doesn't have to be final. He's predicting that his redeemer is going to live. Now, not just Job, because a few hundred years after Job, we'll get a man that we know as King David. King David was uh, a man of many talents, a Renaissance man before the Renaissance. Uh, he was a uh, warrior, mighty warrior. He was a king, but he was also a poet and a songwriter. And don't you dare make fun of him for that because he will chop your head off. But David wrote many of the Psalms and we, we can read those now in the book of Psalms. This is what he wrote in Psalm 16. He said, no wonder my heart is glad and I rejoice. My body rests in safety for you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Now, many scholars believe this is a direct reference to the coming Messiah, that the person David's writing about here is that Messiah. But did you notice that he says, you won't allow his body to stay dead or to rot in the grave, but you show me the way of life. In other words, David is declaring that God's Holy One, his promised Messiah, would die, but not stay dead, that he would come back for, to life. Now, I don't know about you, but that's starting to sound to me like what happened at Easter 2,000 years ago. All right, one more. I got one more. One prophet named Isaiah wrote this about the coming Savior. If you were here for Good Friday, you heard Ben preach about this passage it says this, Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions or our mistakes. He was crushed for our iniquities or our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, on the Messiah, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, I want you to know today that no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what your past looks like, no matter what you think might be unforgivable in your life, that Jesus died to take away that sin. He died so that you could have a relationship with God. And he died not out of duty, 
but out of love, the Bible tells us he willingly laid down his life for us, that, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And, and he died for the world, yes, but he died for you. And I believe that if you were the only one, he still would have done it. But Isaiah goes on and says this about this Messiah. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. That's a prophecy that Jesus fulfilled, by the way. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? Do you remember when Jesus was being tried and all of his disciples fled and didn't say a word? This was hundreds of years before that. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. But catch this. This is what Isaiah says after that death happened. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. That's us. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He made things right for the sinners is what that says. One man, Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died a horrible death as a payment for you and for me and was raised from the dead. And after he was raised from the dead, what we see in the book of Acts is he walks, or, and in Matthew, he walks around on the earth for 40 days. He meets with his disciples. He, has, he eats with them. He, he talks with them. Uh, one by one, they come to realize that he really was who he said he was. He was the savior who was promised and he had actually overcome death. And in Jesus, we have this assurance that death doesn't get the final say. Jesus was raised from the dead to show that God has the power to give us, to give you and to give me life after death, eternal life. If you are in Christ, death is not the end for you. Death is not final. Death is not final. Death is not final. Death is dead. And Jesus proved it. And then he walked around for 40 days and right before he ascended into heaven, right before he called all of his followers together to this one last meeting up on a mountain in Galilee. And the writer Matthew tells us this about that meeting. He says this, when they saw him, they worshiped him. And you can imagine that, right? If you knew somebody who predicted that they were going to be killed and raised from the dead, and then they were killed and raised from the dead, you would probably worship them. They saw him walking around for 40 days. They got to see him again. They got to make things right with Jesus. And then they worshiped him. But look at this. But some doubted. Some doubted. Some people who saw Jesus dead after they saw him alive still doubted it was him. And I know that we can kind of relate to that, right? Because we're here 2,000 years later and none of us have ever seen Jesus in his human form or talked to him in human form. But for those of us, for whom Easter's a really big deal, for whom Jesus is a big part of our life, we don't let that stop us from worshiping him. We still get together. We come together every week uh, to worship him. Now, because of all these promises in scripture, all these promises in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in Jesus, 
Because of that, because he is the Messiah, because he defeated death to show that he can overcome anything in, that, that's happening in your life, we get this one promise in the New Testament that means so much to me, and it's from 2 Corinthians 5. It says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, and the new is here. And I just want you to know that that's why I worship Jesus, because I've found this to be true in my life. Jesus changed my life. He, he didn't make it better or change it by like 10% or improve it a little. He, he gave me a new life. <laughs> like he took what was old and made it new. He took my sin and my disobedience and my brokenness and my anxiety and my intense need to gain approval from people. And he took all of that on and he took it on himself and he took it to the cross. And when he was nailed to the cross and he was raised from the dead, it went away. He stripped that away. He said, you won't be needing that anymore. Jesus took my heart of stone and gave me a new heart, a heart of flesh. And he can do that for you too. And you need that hope. Now, maybe you don't, realize it now or you don't feel it now that you need that hope but we all need the hope of being made new now i want you to know that he is your only hope that the only hope you have to have hope in the middle of the chaos that is this world we're living in is jesus hey we're gonna close by singing a song here in a minute but before we do that i just want to say this uh, if god is working in your heart this morning like, don't go away without talking to somebody about that. If somebody brought you today, maybe you need to talk to them or come see me, come see Ben after the service. We'd love to talk to you and pray with you and help get you started down that path of what it means to have new life in Christ. If he can defeat death, he can overcome anything that's going on in your life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful uh, that you showed us firsthand how you can defeat death. Because when we uh, lose loved ones, when we lose people that we're close to, it can seem so final and so sad and so heartbreaking. Um, but the fact that you defeated death, God, that had to be the hardest thing to defeat. And you won. You, had, you declared victory over death. Death is dead, and we revel in that this morning, that because of Easter, we can have assurance that we can have eternal life with you. And so we thank you for your victory over death this morning, God. Thank you for sending your son. I'm personally thankful that you did not wait for me to turn my life around and come back to you, but that while I was still running away from you, you were pursuing me. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, is what your word says. Lord, I am thankful that while I was, not, I was not looking for you, I was not needing you, I was not feeling the lack of hope that comes without you apart from you, but Lord, you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to die on my behalf and to take on my sin and you raised him from the dead. And I'm thankful for that. Lord, I know that there are people in this room right now that need hope. They need that, they want that hope of a new life of being a new creation. And your word promises that anyone, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone 
If any person is in Christ, they are a new creation, that the old is gone and the new is here. I'm thankful that we got to see that this morning in baptism. I'm thankful that we get to hear those stories. But God, there are people right here, right now that need that hope. And so I just pray that you would be reaching out to them, that you would touch their hearts this morning in these last few minutes of service that we have, maybe in this last song, maybe through something that they hear the rest of the morning, Lord, would you be working in their hearts to show them that you love them, that you're crazy about them, that you sent your son to die for them and that you overcame death. God, we're thankful for you. We're thankful for the promise that's Easter. We're thankful that it comes at a time of spring where we see new life all around us and how intentional you are as a God to show us that visual And Lord, we worship you and we thank you for your work on the cross by which we're saved. In Jesus' name, amen.